If you have been at church here at Northview the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been working through Romans 9. And Romans 9 is a passage that talks about the fact that God is sovereign over salvation, that God chooses the people that he's going to save, that he reaches out and grabs them, takes hold of their heart, that he calls them to himself. And I want to show of hands, if any of you have been in a conversation when this topic has come up of God being sovereign over salvation, has the question come up, well, then what's the point of praying and what's the point of preaching? Yeah? Have you heard that question? Almost every single time I talk to this or I hear this discussion about whether the fact that God is sovereign over salvation, this question comes up. So then what is the point? Why do we pray? Why do we preach? If God chooses who he wants to be saved, why do we even bother praying? Why do we even bother preaching? Well, the answer to that text or that question is found kind of in today's text. It's hinted at in today's text. And so we are going to go to that. There is a reason that we pray. There is a reason that we preach, even though God is sovereign over salvation. And that is because God saves through the obedience of people. He constantly works through the obedience of people to save other people. So on your sheet, you will see that it says God saves through obedient people. I'd like you to cross out the I would like you to just to say God saves through the obedience of people because I thought later I wanted to reword that it's not like we are going to be perfectly obedient and that'll mean that God will save us but God saves through the obedience of people as we do things obediently in alignment with what he calls us to God uses us to help save other people to bring people into salvation so we want to look at the how that idea that God saves through the obedience of people is found in this text in Exodus then we're going to look at how that idea that God saves through the obedience of people is found in the rest of salvation history, which I just, a fancy word for saying the rest of the Bible, kind of from Exodus to Revelation. How does that idea come up that God saves through the obedience of people? And then we're going to look at how that applies to us today in our world. Is that still true today? Does God save through the obedience of people? So we're going to do it in three stages. We're going to look at Exodus, and then we're going to look at salvation history, and then we're going to look at our world today. So we're going to go on that journey. We're going to look at each, at each section about who saves and how does this saving happen. So who saves in Exodus? Well, Exodus 6, 1 to 8. Who saves? Uh, we have read this at our tables. I'm going to reread it again. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am, the, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but to my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they would reside as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you out of the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. Who is going to do the saving? <laughs> is there any question in here that it is God? The number of I wills here is quite astonishing, right? He's saying, I will do this over and over and over again. I am the one that is going to do this. So how, though, does he do it? Well, he uses people. 
So Exodus 6, 10 to 11, after all these I wills, God says, well, then, the, then Yahweh said to Moses, go. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of the country. But Moses said to Yahweh, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? So God has just spent eight verses telling us that he's the one that's going to do the saving. But how is he going to do it? Through Moses. Through Moses' obedience to him. We go after that little section of verses 10 and 11, and we get this huge, long genealogy, which I hope your table leaders read at your table. I didn't make you read all those names. <laughs> Did that happen? No? Okay. <laughs> why is this genealogy here, and why does it end with these verses? It was Aaron, this Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, this same Moses and this same Aaron. Why does God kind of go away from the story, give this whole genealogy, and then reinforce this idea that it was this Moses, not anyone else, this Aaron, from this family, they were the guys? Because they were important to the story. Who they were as people, who they were in the family of Israel, who they were as leaders was important to God. He wanted people to understand who these people were and that it was these actual people that God was using. God was doing the saving, but he was using this group of people, these two men from this family, the family of Levi. And then in verse 7, how is he going to do the saving? Continuing on that, verse 7, 1 to 6. Then, the, then Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell the Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. What does it mean that he has made you like God to Pharaoh? I don't know if you thought about that as you went through your homework. But basically what God is saying to Moses is, I have made you as my representative. You are going to show God to Pharaoh. He's going to look at you and he's going to see what I can do because of who you are, because of how you're representing me. And then he goes on to say, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring up my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against, the Egyptian, against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. So again, he's saying, I will save, but then Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded him. So who saved the people of Israel? Well, God did, and Moses did. They were working together in this saving, in this endeavor. And as we go through the rest of the book of Exodus, we kind of see this played out in various ways. We see there's times where God says to Moses, these are your people who you delivered out of Egypt. And then Moses says back to God, no, they're your people who you delivered out of Egypt. And no, they are your people who you delivered out of Egypt. And this is almost like this synergy together. They work together. And it's like, you know, when you're parenting with your kids and you're upset with your daughter, you'll say to your husband, your daughter did this today, right? And your son did that. Or if you want to compliment them, you'll say, you know, your daughter just did a great thing today. And you know that you did this together, right? But you're somehow attributing the kind of the ownership of the person to somebody else because you're in it together. And so we get this picture in Scripture that God and Moses somehow are working together, that God is saving, but he's using Moses to do the saving. And so God saves, there's no doubt about it, but he uses obedient people. He saves 
through the obedience of people. So we see that in Exodus. God is saving, he's using Moses to do it. How do we see that in the rest of scripture? In salvation history. Well, if we read through the Old Testament, we see that they are saved, they're rescued out of Israel, but there is still a lot of rescuing that needs to happen because the Israelites have a dreadfully sinful heart like all of us people do. And so they go through probably a thousand pages of the Bible, which is a, more than a thousand years of history. And we see this repeat over and over and over again where we realize that no matter how much God has saved them from kind of physical circumstances, there's still a cancer within them. There's still a sickness of their heart that's causing them to sin and to fall away from God. And so after numerous different ways that God tries to kind of re-save them and re-bring them into relationship with them, we get this promise in Ezekiel 36. This is a really dark moment in Israelites' history. They've realized that they have failed once again. They've been sent into exile. The land of Babylon has been allowed to conquer them. And God says, you need to be saved by a different method. And so Exodus 36 says this, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God's telling the people of Israel here, what your problem is, is that you need a new heart. You need to be saved from your heart of stone. You need that heart of stone to be massaged and turned into a heart of flesh so that I can actually work with it. You need the Holy Spirit within you so that you have the desire to follow me, to follow my commands. I am going to do this because you can't do it for yourself. So who's going to save? Well, God's going to save. But how does he do it? Through the obedience of his son, of Jesus. We know that Jesus is the true and better Moses that came not from a palace, um, like a Pharaoh's palace, to meet with his people, but came from the heavenly palaces to be with his people, to live a life of perfect obedience before God and then to die on behalf of people so that we could have his righteousness credited to us. So how does Jesus do that? Well, John 14, 8 to 10, one of Jesus' disciples says to him, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even if I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Moses was asked to be God to Pharaoh, he was asked to represent God to Pharaoh. And now we see the true and better Moses, Jesus, actually fully showing us who God is, fully representing God to us, showing us the fullness. Colossians uh, 2 talks about the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him. Colossians 1, sorry. That he was a full representation of who God was. He showed us on earth who God was. And Luke 22, when he's at the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's about to be crucified. It says that Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So at this moment of crisis, 
at this moment of asking for God to take away the punishment that he knew was going to fall on him, he decided to obey. And he put God's will above his will. It's God who does the saving, but he does it through the obedience of his son. Philippians 2, 5 to 11 tells us the result of that and how we should live in response to that. In your relationships with others, Paul says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ followed all the way God's plan to the end, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God offered us salvation. He offers us a new heart. He offers us to be cleansed from sin. He offers to put his spirit within us because his son perfectly obeyed this plan of salvation. Jesus was the spotless lamb, the one who could be sacrificed on our behalf. He could take on our sin so that we could be freed from it. And through his obedience, we can be saved. There's this great exchange that takes place where our sin is placed on him and we receive his righteousness, his righteousness is credited to, to us, and God sees us as being people in right relationship with him. So as that scripture goes on, as we talk about the rest of salvation history, so we went from Exodus straight to Jesus, but then as we go through the New Testament, we see over and over again that God is the one who does the saving of people, but he does that through the obedience of people. He uses people to be his agents, to spread the news, to pray for people. And so Matthew 28, if you've been at Northview for a while, you've heard Jeff and others talk on, or talk on this passage a lot. It's the Great Commission that's given to us. All of those who follow Jesus, Jesus said, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus is affirming here, I'm the one that's going to do the saving. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm the one who has authority over the souls of people and over salvation history. But you go and you make disciples and you baptize and you teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And so we get this amazing opportunity of being able to work alongside God and what he's doing. Because God works through the obedience of his people. So I have some stories here that I'm just going to quickly reference. We're not going to read them all. But in Acts 2, it talks about the fact that believers are being added to the numbers by God every day as a result of the fact that, the, that Peter and others were going out and preaching and saying the message. God was using their preaching to bring others into relationship with him. In Acts 8, 26 to 40, there's this great story about this uh, guy from Ethiopia. He's on his way kind of in that, in that area, and he's reading through the book of Isaiah, and all of a sudden Philip appears beside him, and the Ethiopian eunuch says, I'm like at this pla uh, place in Isaiah, and I don't understand the story, and Philip explains it to him. 
and he becomes a Christian. He becomes a believer. He's baptized right there on the side of the road. And so God was saving him, but he used Philip to explain the scriptures to him. When the Apostle Paul uh, is met by God on the road to Damascus, there's a big shining light, and Paul's blinded, and Jesus speaks to him out of the cloud. And then Paul goes into the town of Damascus, and then God calls a person and says, Ananias, I want you to go to Paul and to heal him and to tell him to spread the gospel. And so God saved Paul, and yet Ananias partnered with Paul in explaining what had happened to him. In Acts 16, um, there's a woman named Lydia who's down by a river, and she's worshiping God, and God sends Paul into that area, and Paul preaches, and it says, the Lord opened her heart to receive Paul's message. So God is the one saving, God's opening up her heart, and yet he's using Paul's preaching to do it. Acts 16, the Philippian jailer, if you've read that story, I'd encourage you to read these stories if they're not familiar to you. There's a, a, a jailer in Philippi, the same city where Lydia was. Paul and Silas are thrown into jail because of their um, preaching the gospel. While they're there, there's an earthquake, and the jailer's about to kill himself because he thinks that everybody has left the building and that he's going to be killed because all of his prisoners have escaped. And Paul and Silas said, no, we're here. And because of their obedience, this Philippian jailer is saved. And he and his whole household are baptized that night. In Acts 18, uh, there's one passage where Paul is about to leave the town of Corinth because he's so discouraged there. People just aren't coming to faith, and God meets him in a, in a vision at night, and he says, no, you don't leave, because I have lots of people in this city, and I'm going to the, reach them through your preaching. And so Paul is used by God to reach these people in Corinth, and he stays there for a year and a half. So we threw so, throughout salvation history we see the fact that God is the one saving God's the one transforming a heart of stone into a heart of flesh God's the one opening up hearts he's the one engaging with people he stopped the apostle Paul in his tracks all these things happened because God did it but yet he used the obedience of people for the saving work to happen so is that still true today does God use us to save people I want to tell two stories one is uh, one of the reasons that I'm here today so my grandfather um, ended up his life being an educator at Trinity. He was a principal of MEI, did lots of great things, was a great pillar of faith in our family and a great encouragement to me personally. But he wasn't always that way. In his 20s, he had a kind of a group of him and his brothers. And basically, they were, they were living in Yarrow, Chilliwack area. And they were t everyone was told, stay away from the Newman boys. Like, they're trouble. They're the smokers, they're the gamblers, they're the profaners that you just don't associate with these Newman boys. And so my grandpa, uh, with his posse, went to a, a New Year's Eve service. They had New Year's Eve services in those days, and there was an evangelistic message going on there. And his plan at that New Year's Eve service was com to completely disrupt it. That's what they went in to do. They wanted to just stand up in the middle, throw chairs, whatever, make a big scene. Little did they know that their mom, back in Alberta, was down on her knees and said, Lord, I'm not getting up tonight until I know that my boys have been saved. And she was there praying fervently before them. That probably wasn't the first time she'd prayed for them, but she just said that night, she was down on her knees and said, I'm not getting up until I know that my boys have been saved. Meanwhile, back in Yarrow, my grandpa is sitting in, this, in the service and he's hearing the words being preached about the fact that God changed Saul's heart and that God changed David's heart. And he kept thinking, I guess I need a new heart. 
and he stood up to yell something, and I can't remember what he said he was going to yell out of his mouth, but it wasn't something kind, it was he was still rebelling, but instead of yelling a profanity like he thought he would, he just yelled out, I need Jesus. <laughs> and he, someone came and ministered to him and prayed with him, and after he finished the time of praying, he sat down and he looked around and his brother over there was praying with somebody and his other brother over there was praying with somebody and all three of them came to faith that night in Christ. And so I think, did God save them? Yes. Did he use the prayers of the grandma, of their mom? Yes. Did he use the preaching of the word? Yes. All these things together, God was saving through the obedience of people. So I don't say that to say that this is a formula, that if you just sit on the floor and say, I'm not getting up until someone's saved, that it's always going to work. God doesn't work that way, but I believe that God put it on her heart that night that he was going to do a good work in, his, in her son's life and that she should pray because it's through the, the prayers uh, that their hearts were softened. Second story, we were in Nepal a couple years ago, actually quite a few years ago, when my husband and I were first married. We took a semester off from university, and I had grown up in Nepal, so we wanted to spend four months there volunteering just so he could kind of see where I grew up. And we were just walking around town one day, and there was this big hubbub in the village, and all kinds of people were talking about different things, and we couldn't speak Nepali, so we didn't know what was going on. We went back to our area, the little mission hospital where we were working, and we asked people, like, what's, what's going on in the city? And they said, well, there's been a vision of Jesus that was seen in the hillside. And people are coming to the Christians and asking them to explain what that's all about. So was God saving people? Yeah. He was putting this vision to kind of cause him to question, what's going on here? Who is this person? Why are we seeing him? And yet, was that enough? Well, they kind of needed to talk to the Christians to understand it, right? And so we see in Muslim countries all over the world, if you talk to people who work with MB Mission and other groups, you'll see that places where the gospel is hard to get into, God is reaching people with visions, with dreams, with pictures of who he is. He's out to save people but then he intersects their lives with someone that can explain what it means, someone that can give them a Bible, someone that can do the work of being an obedient witness to him. So if you are an unbeliever that's here today, my guess is that you're here because the Lord is working on your heart because it is only God who saves. It's only God who can change your heart of stone to your heart of flesh. And left on your own devices, you probably wouldn't walk into a room like this. But it's my prayer that the women at your table will be his instruments to you, that they'll explain the scriptures, that they'll pray, to, pray on your behalf, and that he will use their obedience to reach you. Who saves us? Well, it's God that saves us. And how does he do it? It's through the obedience of his people. So I want us to stop for a second and realize that this isn't moralism. We can't say that if we are perfectly obedient, that everybody who kind of lives in our family will obey. There's not a guarantee here in Scripture. We still see over and over again in passages like Romans 9 that God is sovereign. He chooses who he will save. God is the only one that can actually do that work to change our heart of stone to a heart of flesh. We cannot argue someone into heaven. We can't beat them over the head with it. We can't, by our own efforts, make that happen. Even our own obedience, our perfectness, whatever, that will not, it's not like a, it's not like a checklist where, you know, if you obey so much, God will do so much. God is still the one 
that is the only one who can change the hearts of the people that we love. And so where does that leave us? As we think about maybe our mother, our daughter, our friend, someone that we've maybe worried about for 20 years, if God's the only one that can save them, where does that leave us? Do we throw up our hands in despair and say, then, well, what's the point? What's the point of, what's the point of praying? What's the point of preaching? No. Because God works through the obedience of his people. And so how, what we need to ask ourselves is then, how can we obey? How can we walk alongside what God is already doing? My, uh, I've had been really convicted about this the last little while. And uh, we have family members who aren't Christians. And for years, I've just kind of stewed about it and asked God, why aren't you saving them? Why is this taking so long? But I have never committed myself to regularly praying for them. And so God, I felt like God was saying, stop stewing, start praying. I've told you that I'll work alongside obedient people, so get to it. And so I've decided this last year, since June or so, that I have my weeks divided up, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and every day, it's interceding for a specific different group of people. And I've never prayed so much for these family members and friends as I have just because it's so intentional. And so every day as I drive to work, I have 20 minutes where I don't do anything else. I don't have the radio on. I don't have anything else. I just intercede. And my heart towards these people has never been softer, never been more. Like I've, They just are so much on my heart because I'm praying for them. And so... <clears throat> God works through the obedience of his people. If we are feeling angst about someone, we just need to commit ourselves to praying for that person. How can we put that into our week? How can we put that into our plan so that God can work through our obedience? One of my friends uh, last week was telling, uh, telling me a story. She works at the hospital, and people once in a while ask her about her faith. And she thought, like, I'm always giving the wrong answer. I'm always speaking with faltering lips, like Moses said. I don't know what to do. And so her and her husband kind of role-played case. So they say this, and then you say this, and then they say this. And they just, she just came up with, a, you know, a simple formula. If somebody asked her, she's just going to say, I follow Jesus. And she thought, I don't know where that's going to land. And so the next time somebody asked her, she just said, I follow Jesus. And she kind of walked away, and the person kind of looked at her confused, and she just wasn't sure what that meant. But it started raising a number of different questions, and this girl started coming to church with her, and this girl started coming to Bible study with her, and it was her way of saying, like, I know I've messed this up in the past, I haven't kind of said what I wanted to in the past, but, but I want to be faithful, I want to proclaim the truth of who I am. And if I just say, well, I'm a Christian, people I might not know what that is, so I want to say specifically, clearly, I follow Jesus, and that was her way of being obedient. And out of that obedience has grown now new conversations and new relationships and new studying together. Maybe it's not praying. Maybe it's not preaching. Maybe it's going somewhere. Some of us are called to missions, to sharing God's message in other parts of the world. That going doesn't have to be other parts of the world. It can be just here locally. It can be our neighborhood, going across the street, going to the family that we interact with. Carol and her husband go out to different trade shows and they bring these walking sticks and they share the gospel as they walk through that. Uh, as they give out these walking sticks, they talk about the fact that God uh, created the world and that mankind rebelled against God 
and that God has since sent his son to redeem the world and offers us an opportunity to live in restoration with him. And they just simply ask, if you, as you get the walking stick, do you want to hear the gospel? And they don't know where it lands, they don't know where it goes, but they're faithfully proclaiming in obedience to Christ the gospel message. So if you are here with a family member who is just wrenching your heart, someone that you want to be saved, I just encourage you to just keep obeying, keep preaching, keep praying, ask God for that opportunity, and never give up. We don't know what God's going to use, what seed he's going to plant that will grow into fruition at which, at which year, um, at what circumstance that they face. We have people that we love. God saves through the obedience of people, so let's be obedient. Partner with him so that he can use our actions, our words, as he reaches out to save people. So let's pray to that end. Lord, we thank you so much that you have amazing, miraculous power to reach into a heart, a heart that is stony, a heart that is old and crusty, and that you can soften it up, that you can massage it, that you can draw um, a person who is far from you to yourself. We thank you, Lord, that you did that with Apostle Paul, someone who was completely intent on murdering your people, and yet you stopped him in his tracks, and you made him one of your ch children. Lord, we thank you for this amazing power that you have. Lord, I know that in this room there is people in all of our hearts, people who we want to know you, who we want you to save. And Lord, I pray that you would do a mighty saving work in the lives of our grandkids and our kids and our friends and our neighbors. Lord, I pray that as we wait for your work, that you would find us faithful, that you would find us persevering in prayer that we would be willing to share, that our past failures wouldn't stop us. We're just continuing to just simply proclaim that we are followers of you. And so, Lord, I just pray that as we struggle with this issue of the fact that we can't change anybody, Lord, that you would help that to be something that draws us closer and closer to you and makes us more and more dependent upon you, that we would seek you and that we would find you as we seek you with all our heart and that we would just spend our lives in prayer and intercession for those around us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.